I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today's podcast is with best-selling author John Grisham, where he and I discuss the subject, The Lawyer as Leader, at a national conference organized by Baylor Law School under the theme, Vision for Leadership. We did the interview in front of a virtual Zoom audience on September 17, 2020. Enjoy. Well, thank you, Dean Tobin. It's certainly a great honor to be a part of this conference and for John to, uh, at the last minute, be available, uh, realizing the, the topics that are being covered and the, the role of the lawyer's leader. And he's stepping up to really uh, put an exclamation point at the end of the conference. John really does not need an introduction. Uh, of course, he started out as a practicing lawyer, but uh, found fame and fortune uh, writing fiction. And uh, with each year, he becomes more of a leader in important national efforts, whether it's for the Innocence Project or for access to justice or uh, most recently, a real focus on addressing childhood hunger in the country. Uh, John, welcome uh, virtually to, to Texas and to this conference. Hello, Tom. It's happy to be Welcome. Well, John, let's get started on uh, the lawyer as leader and kind of reviewing your life and how that topic kind of keeps winding itself, different parts of what you've done after you realized one day that you were not going to become a major league baseball player. Uh, you decided to finish up college and go to law school at Ole Miss. And, and after you graduated from Ole Miss in 1981, you uh, started out as a small practitioner in a small town, handled a wide variety of cases and matters, basically taking whatever walked in the door uh, that might pay something. And after doing that three years, you, you kept on lawyering, but you pursued the traditional lawyer leadership path and that is you tried your hand in politics. And in fact, you were successful. You served six years in the Mississippi State Legislature. So what was it that motivated you to pursue elective office when you were still uh, a young man? Well, first of all, Talmadge, it's good to see you again. Uh, thanks to Dean Tobin. I'm happy to be here and happy to take part and happy to pinch hit for James Baker. Uh, I'll get him back one day. Uh, he'll have to pinch hit for me. But uh, delighted to be here and uh, look forward to the next hour talking uh, law and politics and baseball uh, with you. Uh, the, the politics was um, something in the back of my mind when I was in law school. Many years ago, back in the 50s and 60s, half the legislature in Mississippi uh, were law students from Ole Miss. And they would, uh, they would take off the spring semester every other year, not every year and go to Jackson for three months and serve as lawmakers. So it was quite a tradition. Uh, most of our governors a long time ago had been from Ole Miss, were also uh, members of the House, and they got involved in politics that way. And um, I was living in a uh, sub suburb of Memphis. That's where I grew up, in Mississippi, just across the state line. And uh, at a young age, I, uh, I knew that the guy who uh, was from our district in the state house was uh, – was beatable. And I wanted to run in 1989 in law school because uh, I knew I could beat him. And uh, my father talked me out of it and I, uh, it's probably a good move. But by 1983, I was ready to go. And one reason I went back to my hometown was to 
practice law, and my wife was from there, all of our families. But also, I wanted to run for office in 1983 for the state house, and I did, and I won, and got myself elected. Uh, and then took off to Jackson for every year uh, for three or four months. And it was um, uh, the campaign was a lot of fun. The job was not that much fun. Uh, I was three hours away from home trying to uh, maintain a law office, and my wife was having babies, and life was pretty complicated. And uh, I never really took to public service. I realized once I got elected that um, uh, I got 65% of the vote when I ran, uh, but everybody voted for me, and everybody wanted something, and everybody wanted, uh, you know, from jobs to uh, favors to <laughs> birth certificates or whatever, you know, the, we had no staff. And so we had to do it all ourselves. And I just really got tired of the uh, con- constituent service. I got, you know what, Talmadge, I got tired of the voters. And when you're a politician and you get tired of the voters, you need to quit. So I didn't last very long in politics. <laughs> well, as your political career was ending in 1990, that was about the time that your writing career started. Uh, a Time to Kill came out the year before 1989. Of course, at first, it didn't sell real well. It came back later and became number one. And then The Firm came out in 91. And, of course, it was followed by a string of legal thriller bestsellers that allowed you to retire from practicing law and devote yourself entirely to writing. <laughs> but there was something that happened in law school that really kind of uh, maybe influenced you a little bit. Uh, talk about your law professor, Robert Kyatt. Kayat, and uh, what happened uh, at the end of that semester in, in Professor Kayat's class? Uh, Robert Kayat was an All-American football player at Ole Miss back in the glory years. And Ole Miss uh, won two national titles, early 60s, late 50s, and they were national power. He was an All-American. Uh, he played for the Redskins briefly. Uh, he has the, the distinction of being the only man we know of in history who dated back-to-back Miss Americas. <laughs> he had back-to-back Miss Americas when he was there, and he, was a, he liked ladies, and so he, was, he, got, he got all the girls. But he, uh, he dated back-to-back Miss Americas. As far as we know, he's the only man to ever do that. And he, uh, he played one or two seasons with the Redskins, and uh, he got burned out, came back to law school, stayed there, and became a professor, and he taught torts and uh, other courses. And I met him in the fall of 1978 when I was a first-year student. He was my torts professor. And he was, uh, he's very charismatic. He later became chancellor, served for 15 years as chancellor and worked for the NCAA. Anyways, great guy. We're still friends. We still talk all the time. And uh, during the first semester torts exam, uh, it was one of those classic four-hour brutal exams that we all suffered through. And um, he had four questions, you know, these, these half-page questions that describe things that would never happen in real life, but you know, you got to figure out what the legal issues are and solve them. And uh, I got to number four, and it was um, an impossible factual scenario. And I just didn't get it. I, I didn't understand what the question was all about. And I was about out of time, as, as that happens all the time. And so there was a, one central character in the story, and I just started writing about this guy, and I wrote pages and pages and pages. And just, you know, <laughs> yes, it was just, you know, that's all I could do. I was filling, filling the pages. And uh, I got when I went back in January to get the grades. It was long before the internet; nothing was posted online. And um, I picked up my exam from uh, from Dr. Kayette, and uh, the grade was okay, uh, a lot better than I thought. And uh, so I was reading the exam, and I, and I came to the last question, and there were red marks all over the page. At the very bottom, he had written um, 
although you missed most of the legal issues in this problem, in this problem, you have a real talent for fiction. <laughs> and he, we both remember that. And about ten years later, when *A Time to Kill* came out, it was not a big, you know, big success. But he he called me and he said, "Do you remember your torts exam?" I said, oh, "Yeah, I'll never forget it." He said, "Well, I told you so. I told you." <laughs> Well, uh, as evidenced by that answer in all your books, you are a great storyteller, and certainly much of your fiction writing is pure entertainment. You're very <clears throat> open. You're not trying to be the next Dostoevsky. You're just writing for to entertain the readers. You do a great job of it. But particularly in recent years, you've, you've started becoming, at least in part, purpose-driven. I mean, the, the confession was about uh, some angles on the death penalty that are important, and of course... The appeal, uh, which was set in Mississippi, was actually based on a true story from West Virginia about the evils of partisan political election of of judges. Yeah. And so uh, it seems like more and more you're, you're coming up with stories that demonstrate flaws in our legal system that need to be corrected. And it makes you almost but not quite a crusader. So what inspired you to start creating plots that zeroed in on some of the glaring defects and major wrongdoing in America's justice system? Probably uh, the innocent man 15 years ago. I think that's when things began to change for me. Uh, it was the only nonfiction book I've written. And uh, I had, uh, I, you know, I practiced law for 10 years. Most of my clients were uh, court appointed criminal cases because I wanted to be in the courtroom. And so I had a lot of criminal work um, and I never had a client I thought was wrongfully convicted uh, in my little section of Mississippi, our, our judicial district. We, you know, we had good judges, we had good prosecutors, we, we knew the police and everything was played straight up. We, you know, we, I never, I missed the concept of a wrongful conviction. And um, when I started writing, I somehow missed the first big wave of DNA exonerations, the high profile exonerations that began in the late 90s. And then I stumbled across a story about a guy in Oklahoma who came within five days of being executed. And he was the second round draft pick of the Oakland A's in 1972. We were the same age. He, in his little section of Oklahoma, uh, Ada, Oklahoma, uh, people thought he was the next uh, Mickey Mantle, also from Oklahoma. And Ron Williamson, the player, the, the star, certainly thought so. He thought he, he was going to be great and didn't make it. Uh, had some injuries and other picked up some bad habits and came back home and was framed for a murder from his town. He was a he was a high school sports hero in the same town. They turned on him and convicted him, prosecuted him, convicted him, and sent him off to death row for a crime he had nothing to do with. And he was made, he started showing signs of uh, being bipolar and other uh, schizophrenia and other mental problems in prison. And he just he totally collapsed in prison. It was just a great story. And I found out about it uh, reading his obituary in 2004. It was a New York Times obituary. And there's a picture of Ron standing in court the day he was exonerated. And he had this ill-fitting suit on and he looked 10 years older than he was. And um, he was about to walk out free after 11 years being locked up. And the story just hit hard. We were the same age, same race, same economic background, same section of the country, same religious background, everything. And this guy had gone to death row. And it was just a fascinating 
uh, journey. I took off to Oklahoma and began researching and got surprised every day. And the, the story grew and grew. But it, it took me into the world of wrongful convictions. And I realized for the first time how many of them we have and how many innocent people are in prison still today. Um, and it, I, I have not been the same since. Uh, I have not been the same since. I, I've still... Uh, correspond with some of these guys I met in prison, so we were trying to get them out. Uh, I, I take on other, uh, not cases, but people I know and who are locked up. I serve on the board of the Innocence Project. Uh, yesterday, for example, I, I spoke to both the governor and the uh, AG here in Virginia about cases that uh, people were trying to get out. So it's just something that's become a cause for me. It makes for great fiction. Every wrongful conviction is a fantastic story from a storytelling point of view, because of the injustice, the suffering, the, the cost, they're just uh, incredible stories. I wish I could write them all. And, uh, you know, I've written The Confessionals. But the Confessionals is a story set in Texas about the question of what are we going to do as a nation when we wake up one day and realize that we know by clear DNA proof that we just killed the wrong guy. It hadn't happened yet. We, we know we have executed innocent people, but there's not that clear DNA uh, proof. And, you know, what's going to happen to our system when that happens? So I thought that was, I was uh, really enthralled with that issue. And that, that, that was the book I wrote. The Guardians came out last year and that was about uh, wrongful conviction. So I've probably done enough of it for a while in, in the world of fiction. And there are other stories to write, but that really has prompted me to take a long, hard look at our criminal justice system and think about issues like uh, mass incarceration and sensing disparities and race and all kinds of issues that still bug me big time. Well, I know you've been on the board of the Innocence Project for many years, and that's, you know, you're a leader and you certainly raised the profile of that organization. Uh, for this audience, uh, talk about some of the things that the Innocence Project has accomplished uh, that, that uh, has kind of advanced the ball in the world of criminal justice, or at least in the lives of, of some people. Well, number one, we have walked out 370 uh, innocent people um, with DNA testing. The Innocence Project in New York, and there are about 50 Innocence Projects around the country. Uh, some come and go, and most of them are attached to a law school. A few are freestanding. Anybody can start one. Um, they're all terribly underfunded. Um, but they, they work as a network and, and all do the same kind of you know, good work. But the, the Innocence Project in New York is sort of the hub. We, we litigate from coast to coast, and we take uh, a lot of cases, and, but we, we handle only just DNA. And believe it or not, Talmadge, the, the DNA cases are the easiest cases. None of them are easy. Uh, it's very difficult to get somebody out of prison, even with DNA testing. Uh, there are a lot of um, non-DNA cases out there that are basically hopeless because you, you, don't, you, don't, you do not have a clear biological proof to get somebody out. And so we take only DNA cases, and uh, that is, you know, a full-time, we have a staff of 100 and a budget of $20 million that we have to raise privately, and, but we're extremely aggressive. That's what we do primarily is get innocent people out of prison. What we also do is, uh, is legislate and push policy and push corrections and, and try to pass laws in all 50 states that will prevent wrongful convictions. It's something we could do. We could, we, could, we could stop almost all wrongful convictions, almost all, if we would change some of our laws. And we advocate for that. We push policy hard. 
and we have professionals who do that. And it's a, it's a kick-ass organization. And, and it's, it's really, it's based in New York. Most of the boards in New York, uh, some really high powered people, but, it, and it's a kind of board nobody wants to get off of. I've been on for like 12 years. I think, I think they're, you know, my time is up. I'm not, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I don't want to get off the board, but uh, that's how, that's how meaningful the work is. Well, a big part of our audience for this uh, symposium are law school deans and former deans and law school professors, and they're all going to go back to their law schools. You've talked about how Anderson's project is underfunded and uh, can always, I'm sure, use more help. What, what would be your message to them to take back to their students about opportunities to do some meaningful pro bono work for the Innocence Project? We helped start the Innocence Project at Ole Miss, and we helped start the one here at UVA, and both have been very successful. And the, if you get into a clinical situation where you have kids, um, students who are working the cases, the students love it. We, we, we have far too many kids who want to get into the program because they love the work. Uh, just a quick anecdote. My son, Ty, 10 years ago was a law student at Ole Miss, and he was in the uh, clinical, the, uh, the Innocence Clinic there. He was assigned a case on death row, got him Eddie Lee Howard. He went to visit Eddie Lee Howard a couple of times on death row at Parchman Prison in Mississippi, got to know him pretty well. And that was in 2008. And last week, uh, the Supreme Court finally, after 20 years of litigation, uh, awarded Eddie Lee Howard a new case based on lack of evidence. He was convicted by some really unreliable bite mark evidence, which has been proven unreliable everywhere. And there's still a bunch of it in Mississippi for a bunch of reasons. But um, Eddie Lee Howard got a new trial last week, and that's a huge victory for an innocence project. And my, my son had a very small role in that a long time ago. And we had a, um, had a reason to celebrate last week because of that one case. But the students love it. Um, students and, and young lawyers often ask me what they could do if they're concerned about innocence, once you get into this stuff and once you meet these exonerees and once you read about their cases, uh, you, you really want to get involved at some level. And I, I tell, I tell students or young lawyers, um, find an innocence project. There's one nearby, uh, volunteer, at least find a, a, a client in prison who claims to be innocent and write the guy a letter, start a correspondence. You don't know what it's like to be in prison with nobody on the outside who believes in you. You don't know what it's like to be there if nobody will listen to you or write your letter. To get a letter from a lawyer, uh, just a friendly hello letter, you know, means the world. Uh, I've talked to these exonerees and I've, I've listened to their stories and, and they'll tell you they were lost. They were in prison. They were, things were hopeless and they were innocent. In prison is terrible enough if, you, if you're guilty, but if you're innocent, it's 10 times worse. And, and they would get, they got, they got the letter. They got a letter from a lawyer. And again, it shows the power of a law degree, the power of the license to practice law, what you can, what you can do, what you can change if you, if you really want to. Well, when you came to Texas last October and spoke uh, here for the Dallas Museum of Art, and then you went down to Austin for the Texas Book Festival, I know between those two events, uh, you flew down to, to Beaumont? Yes. And, 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 is that guy still on death row? Uh, no, it's Joe, Joe Bryan is the case, the famous Texas case. Joe served 35 years for somebody else's murder. And he uh, murdered his wife, a woman he adored. And it's a terrible, it's a terrible factual situation. But again, he's, he, he's almost 80 years old. 
he was turned down for parole, I think, seven times in Texas, and he was awarded parole back in February and got out uh, just in time for COVID. But he, he had a very good landing place. He had, he had family in Houston. That's where he is now, and he's doing great. And I talk to him all the time. And one of the happy stories, but Joe, Joe Bryan got out uh, in February. Well, besides the Innocence Project, another very important cause for which you're a, a leading advocate, you've spoken at national conventions, you spoke at our big Texas Access to Justice Dinner last October, is the need for legal aid and access to justice for people who can't afford lawyers. So what was it about that cause that, that made you want to get involved and be such an advocate for it? Well, Talmadge, when I was a young lawyer, I, I didn't... Um, I went back to my hometown, just hung out my shingle and, you know, had a little office and declared myself ready to sue. <laughs> I, was a, I was a new gunslinger in town with no ammunition, but, I, you know, I was, I was raring to go. And, you know, all my clients were poor people or working people or uh, folks I'd grown up with, and they couldn't pay hourly fees. Uh, and, and so I took a lot of cases. I, I, I always found it impossible to say no to somebody who really needed legal help. Uh, a lot of folks don't need it. They think they do. But, you know, somebody with a real claim eviction or, you know, a woman in an abusive situation at home or some some terrible set of facts. And I, I, I could never say no. And so I took a lot of stuff. Pro bono was my specialty right off the bat. I didn't uh, it didn't start out that way. Most of my clients just never paid me because I had that so I didn't work for free. So I got I got, I got a good taste of it uh, right off the bat. And, and I realized also uh, as a very young lawyer, uh, the power of a uh, law license. Because when you have a client who is poor and has no voice, no standing, no respect, nothing, and they're about to be wrongfully evicted or some used car dealer is pulling on a fast one or whatever, and you've got, they, they see you, they come see you, and you, you do your research and you realize that they, they're right and the bad guy's wrong. And I, I, I love to do this. You make that phone call. You call the crook and you say, hey, I'm so-and-so attorney at law. My client is right here. What are you doing? And everything changes dramatically. I mean, the whole, it, everything changes. And suddenly your client has a voice. Your client has rights that can be protected. And I, I just love that kind of work, even though I was starving to death. Uh, it, was, it was something that I found very enjoyable. And, and so w- once I was able to do it and, you know, on my feet, uh, I gave a lot back to legal aid and trying to help. Uh, poor people access justice. As you as you know, you've talked. You guys have talked about it all week. Uh, I don't know what the true national average is, but it's something like fifty percent of all Americans do not have access to civil justice. And we're about to see a whole new wave of people who are being are going to be mistreated because of evictions and healthcare and all sorts of things that are happening now because of the pandemic. One of your recent novels, uh, the, the title's not coming to me, but it's a story of a young woman who's at a major New York law firm, and she's miserable. She's working all the time, but she's miserable. And then there's a layoff, and then she decides to go to a legal aid clinic, where all of a sudden she finds herself in the middle of fascinating work that ultimately, of course, per your novels, turns dangerous. But uh, again, with our audience of law school deans and professors, in terms of uh, the level of, of uh, engaging work and that can make a difference in, in, in people's lives doing that type of work compared to just big firm, uh, I would think that 
uh, a case should be made to law students to think about it at the young part of your career. Uh, it's not just about money. There's, there's a whole lot more to be gained by, by that type of experience. Yeah, I never had the opportunity for a big firm. I never really wanted to do that. I mean, I, did, I didn't have the, uh, I was not heavily recruited in law school, put it that way. Unlike, unlike Mitch and the firm, I was not heavily recruited out of law school. So I, I, that, that didn't even apply. I, I was going back to my hometown to, you know, to start my own shop. And, and um, so, I, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't get the big, but, I, but over, over the years, I've, I've come to really respect uh, a lot of big firms who are very serious about uh, uh, legal aid pro bono work. I mean, now that I'm involved with so many uh, death penalty cases and people on death row, the work that some of these big firms do just with death penalty litigation eats up thousands of hours. And, uh, and these wrongful convictions, some of these uh, wrongful conviction cases drag on for 10 years. And these big firms have, have the resources, but they also have the, uh, the power, enthusiasm and desire to uh, represent people who, who need help and can't pay. And so I have a lot of respect for, uh, for the big firms who do that. I, I tell younger lawyers, and I think almost all lawyers believe that you got to give something back. Uh, you you, you got to make a living, first of all. And I never was very good at that. Uh, but, but you got to, as a lawyer, but but you got to give something back. You, you got to take, you know, 10% of your time has got to be spent helping people who, who can't uh, help themselves. You, you, you can't just, that's what I try to tell people. And, and, and sometimes it comes across in, in the novels. The book you're talking about is called Gray Mountain, and it yeah, just in the financial crisis in 2008. The big law firms in Washington, it was really true. They, uh, amidst all these layoffs, they, uh, one firm, or probably several firms, but they, so they told their associates, uh, we're not going to pay you for 18 months. You have to leave. We'll, we'll keep your health insurance. Uh, go somewhere and work for a, a nonprofit or a pro bono legal services somewhere uh, just keep working. We'll, we'll keep you employed. You got a place here when, you know, when things come back to normal and these lawyers scattered suddenly legal aid, uh, legal aid societies all over the country. were getting bombarded by uh, lawyers with Ivy league degrees <laughs> in, in the trenches and get their hands dirty. And I thought that was just a really neat, uh, factual backdrop for a novel to take a young lawyer who suddenly is kicked out and has to go, into Appalachia in the cold country and work in a legal, legal aid clinic. And it turned out, the story turned out okay. Yeah, I'd say so. Well, going back to your writing, uh, besides creating legal thrillers for adult readers uh, with your book that basically comes out uh, every fall, uh, 10 years ago, you started writing thrillers for children and adolescents uh, in books that feature Theo Boone, Kid Lawyer. Yeah, This is a series kind of like the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew that you and I grew up with. And uh, so what was it that, that made you think you might want to write fiction for, for a younger audience? I had never thought about it. I was having too much fun with the, the as we call them, the big books, the big novels. Uh, about 10 years ago, my daughter started teaching public schools in Raleigh, North Carolina. Her first, she went to UNC. Her first class was um, a group of fifth graders and she really uh, pushed reading. Uh, we, my wife and I bought her the whole uh, Hardy Boys Library and Institute Library. We stocked her library for her. We were thrilled to do it. Helped her set up her classroom and she was all excited about uh, her first year of teaching. And not long after she started, it, over dinner one night, she um, she asked me the question, could I write suspense for kids? 
And I never thought about it. She said she uh, was having trouble finding good suspense for kids. There were lots of other types of books, you know, historical fiction, fantasy, whatever. Um, and I thought, well, that's a challenge. And I started thinking about how, how would I do that? I came up with the notion of this 13-year-old kid who's an only child. Both of his parents are lawyers in a small town. And they were practiced together. And the family is just devoted to the law. All they talk about is the law. Like he grew up, you know, hearing nothing but the law. And he knows a lot of it. And he's, he's a real operator around town. He knows every cop, every judge, every lawyer. He hangs out in the courtroom. For Theo, fun is watching a trial, not watching a ball game, not playing video games. He goes to trials. And, he, and because of that, he knows a lot of the law. And he stays in trouble because he's always given legal advice to his friends and their older brothers. And it's part of the, part of the plot. But uh, the book <laughs> has been uh, a lot of fun to write. And the kids so far have enjoyed it. Um, in every book, I, I try to uh, teach a little bit, teach the kids about something about the law. Uh, the, the last book was about the cash bail system in this country and how it keeps people locked up, you know, who should be out uh, for, for minor crimes. And uh, I always pick an issue somewhere and, and try to, you know, tell both sides of it. Uh, tell them a lot about the procedures, the uh, vocabulary, the nomenclature, the, you know, the, 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 the ins and outs of the the law and what happens on the criminal side and sometimes on the civil side. Um, I get, I get lots of letters from teachers who uh, make, they make every kid write me a letter. So I get a stack of letters from a teacher and, and the letters are hilarious. And I, uh, I got a letter from a federal judge in California a few years back who uh, wrote me a very nice formal letter. He'd had a class come to his courtroom on a field trip to watch a trial and during recess, he invited the kids back to his chambers and for a conversation. And the kids were peppering him with questions, you know, good questions about procedure, about the law and, and whatever. And he was really, and finally he asked the teacher, uh, she said something like, you guys are really teaching these kids well about the law. How are you doing that? The teacher said, well, we're, we're reading Theodore Boone. And the kids were like, <laughs> <laughs> and but his letter was very complimentary. He said, he said, keep it up. You're doing a good job. So and that stuff like that keeps me going. But um, after seven Theo books, I'm beginning to kind of wonder now how long I can sustain a long series. So uh, that, I'm, I'm two years between books now. Well, uh, for those uh, participating who may not have read a Theo Boone, even though it's targeted for children and adolescents, I've read every one of them and they're fantastic. The plots are terrific. You'll love it. You'll kind of see how John weaves in education and, and about courts and justice. And it's, it's just fantastic. Uh, John, uh, a final area where you and, and especially uh, your wife, Renee, have taken on real leadership roles is attempting to address this widespread uh, problem of uh, hunger among children uh, in America. And that's especially a problem uh, now in, in the pandemic. Uh, we've got uh, on the screen uh, uh, a slide from this wonderful organization, No Kid Hungry, that you and Renee are, are big leaders uh, in. So, so what is it about this problem that uh, caused you and your wife to decide you wanted to become leaders in, in addressing it? It's funny how things go back to your kids uh, my daughter, when she started teaching, uh, within a few days, she called home one night in tears and uh, was really upset because she realized 
that some of her kids were coming to school uh, without breakfast. They were hungry. And sometimes the bus would get there late and they couldn't run by the cafeteria. Some did not want to be stigmatized by going by for a free breakfast. Uh, some did not want to be stigmatized by a free or reduced price lunch. And she said, I've got hungry kids in my classroom and these kids, you, I can't teach them when they're hungry. And we were stunned by it. We had never seen the numbers. We had never stopped to think about childhood hunger in America. And probably most of us have not. And so typically my wife plunged in with, you know, both feet and we were buying breakfast packs and everything else for the school. And, and that kind of led to uh, my wife's involvement with No Kid Hungry. She's now on the board. And No Kid Hungry is a national effort to uh, all 50 states to raise a bunch of money to help uh, every school district uh, make sure that kids uh, get food. And the, the, it's a problem that is solvable because there's enough food in this country, enough money in this country, and enough appropriations in, in food bills every year, and it has been for 50 years, to provide enough food. Uh, there's a disconnect between the appropriations of the federal level and state level and getting the food on the table with the kids because of bureaucracies and summertimes and weekends and now COVID, uh, the kids are not in school. And so No Kid Hungry works to, with, with local school districts to show them how to get the food. Uh, we buy equipment if, if, if equipment's needed. We do all kinds of, uh, we will even buy food. Uh, but we are working right now, it's, it's at a crisis point because of COVID, because kids are not in school and they're not getting their food. It, right here in, in Virginia, where we are, Virginia is, was the first state to be fully funded under No Kid Hungry. Uh, because of uh, our governor's, the ex-governor's wife and my wife, uh, they spearheaded an effort to make Virginia 100% funded. We've got that now. And so in this county right here, Charlottesville, our school buses are delivering lunches to kids at home, and they, but they're still not getting all of them. And so it's a, it's, it's a huge problem right now. And, and Brene and I are working a lot of hours to try to try to help that. Well, I, I think uh, part of this conference is the idea of thinking outside the box uh, in terms of ways people can be leaders. I'll tell all the participants that in your conference materials, I know they're going to send you a, a donation link for No Kid Hungry. And if you'd like to, a nice way of saying thanks to John for participating in the conference, we'd love it if you'd make a donation to No Kid Hungry. Uh, uh, because uh, obviously the, the need is, is great. But, but John, let's talk now kind of about the conference theme of kind of lawyers as, as leaders. And uh, of course, everybody has a unique life story of how you went from doing something that didn't really seem to be going very far, like your original legal career and legislative career. And then lo and behold, next thing you know, you start writing fiction and, and all kinds of good things happen. Uh, and I think the way it happened uh, could be instructive to, to our audience as to just go where your heart's telling you to go. So, so why don't you tell the story of the circumstances that caused you to write your first novel, uh, A Time to Kill? Well, if, if I had not been a lawyer, I would never have written uh, the first book. I didn't, I didn't study writing. I didn't dream of being a writer. It was not 
something that I ever thought I would do. I was 30 years old before I ever started writing my first book. And my first book was A Time to Kill. Um, but, I, but because I wanted to be in the courtroom and, and because of that, I, I volunteered for a lot of court-appointed cases and, and had a lot of clients like that. And, but I was always trying to, to be in the court. When I was in law school, town, I, I watched the federal court docket in Oxford and if I saw a big trial coming with, with well-known lawyers, I would cut class and go watch the trial. Um, and even when I was practicing, if I knew there was a really good trial going on somewhere or in my courthouse, uh, I tried to be there just to watch the good lawyers, the good trial lawyers. And I had this really strong desire to be a um, courtroom lawyer. And, and I was inspired by, we had some really uh, great ones back then in Mississippi. Back then, like Texas, we had great tort laws uh, that were favorable to the plaintiff. And so we had uh, a really strong uh, trial lawyer's bar. I was a member of it. And I, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to spend time there and learn. And I was hanging around a courtroom in my home county, my home courtroom one day, watching a horrible trial, a criminal trial. And um, it inspired me to... Um, to create this drama. I, I didn't know it was going to be a book. I, I don't know what it's going to be, but it was so, it was a very emotional case of a young girl who had been sexually assaulted and the facts are beyond description, but she testified. And uh, it was a very, it, it was, the situation was so um, emotional that the judge, my judge, my mentor, great old trial judge, uh, ordered the courtroom to be closed Everybody got out of the courtroom, except for the jurors, of course, and the lawyers and clerks. And I was an officer of the court, so I could stay. And uh, But he, he banned the spectators, ran them all out, put deputies at the, at the door, and he cleared the courtroom. I've never seen that before or since. And um, so this little girl testified, and um, it went on for probably, I don't know, an hour or so. And... Um, at times there were, you know, she, she took us through every emotion <laughs> known to the human soul, uh, love, hate, revenge. It, it was incredible. Uh, there were times when um, I looked at the jury box and they were all crying. And I knew two ladies on the jury and uh, the judge was hiding his face, you know, and it was just God awful. And after an hour, he, she had enough. And so the judge said, okay, let's take a break. And, um, I fled the courtroom. I couldn't, I couldn't wait to get out of it. And it stuck with me for a long time. And I, I began to think about, you know, what would that jury do if the facts were a little different? And what would that jury do if her father had managed to get his revenge? You know, th thoughts like that. And so this, this drama came together mentally and, and I became obsessed with it. And, um, so after, you know, after a few weeks of that, I said, okay, I'm going to try to see if I can capture this uh, in print, in words. And, and late one night after Renee had put the kids to bed and late at night, I uh, took a legal pad and I wrote chapter one. <laughs> chapter one. Didn't have a title back then. Didn't know what I was doing. Didn't know, if I, didn't know how far I would get. Didn't know if I was going to finish it. Did, didn't care. I just wanted to see if I could capture this before I forgot about it. And um, became fairly disciplined about uh, writing, writing every day. And, and I tell, you know, students and aspiring writers now, until you're writing every day, nothing's going to happen. You can talk about it, think about it, 
you know, whatever you want to do. Don't talk about it. Don't, don't, don't talk about your book. Just write it. Write a page a day. One page a day, every day, no excuses, same place, same time. Write a page a day. And until you're doing that, again, nothing's going to happen. So I learned that lesson the hard way. And after three years, the book was the book was finished. I didn't know what to do with it. It was a you know thousand page manuscript, <laughs> and uh, I began sending it off to New York to agents and publishers. And uh, this is about nineteen eighty seven, I guess. And they sent it right back. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was the, the classical submission rejection, submission rejection. You know, I, the rejections piled up, and um, finally, uh, an agent called one day. And uh, he said, I'd like to represent you in this book. And that was the first uh, of many magical phone calls from New York. And, uh, the book came out a year later. Uh, by then, it was called A Time to Kill. Um, a very small publisher in New York, unknown. I was unknown. They printed 5,000 hardback copies, and we couldn't give them away. You know, it was pretty much <laughs> a lot. My home paper, the Memphis Commercial Appeal, the paper I grew up with, uh, just took great delight in trashing the book. I just <laughs> almost cried. Uh, I, I was hurt so bad when, the, when my own paper just really trashed the book. And uh, so, yeah, I went through all the, I went to bookstores and nobody showed up. You know, I did everything that you, you do as a debut author. It's, uh, it's part of it, I guess. We can all tell those stories, especially now when they're funny. Uh, but they, they weren't funny back then. And, uh, but 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 after writing for three years, I um, I was in the habit of doing it, and I had the desire. And one, once I started writing, I, I was suddenly consumed with this dream of writing full time. Wouldn't it be great to leave the law office behind, leave all these clients who can't pay, all the fifty phone calls a day, you know, the constant struggle to meet the overhead, all this kind of stuff? Wouldn't it be great to walk away from that and do nothing but write? And that was a dream I had for the last three, several years that I practiced and. And so I, I told Renee, I said, I've got another idea for a book. And I think it's more, I think it's more commercially accessible. I think it's, it has a chance to be more popular. Uh, I'm going to write one more book. And if the second book doesn't work, I'm going to quit this little secret hobby and just go sleep. And um, uh, the second book was The Firm. And when The Firm came out in uh, March of 91, uh, it was I mean, overnight. It was, uh, you know, very popular and I could quit the law office and say, I woke up one morning and I said, you know, I'm bored with politics. I'm bored with the law. I'm going to be a time writer. And, uh, that was almost 30 years ago. Well, uh, I remember you telling a story about, uh, you, your agent had the firm and was trying to sell it. And you went to church one Sunday <laughs> and, uh, and kind of kind of give the John Grisham version of of how your life changed in a minute. It changed in, it changed in uh, one Sunday morning. It was the first Sunday in January of 1990 and uh, cold, dreary January Sunday morning. And we lived uh, about two blocks from the church. And it took uh, it took two cars to get us there, okay, with two kids. And so I, I, I got mad and went on early and uh, as, as happened. And when my wife came to church a few minutes later, she said, uh, uh, Jay Guerin just called. Jay was my agent. He just called from New York on a Sunday morning. These people don't work on weekends or they don't work in summertime. They, you know, they don't work much. And uh, 
I said, what's he doing on Sunday? She said, go call him right now. This is, this is something big is going to happen. And the firm had been in his office for about three months with nothing happening. Uh, he, uh, he'd shown it to a couple of publishers and there'd been no reception. Um, what we didn't know though, was, uh, a, this used to happen in publishing all the time. A, uh, bootleg copy of the manuscript had surfaced in Hollywood. Somebody had copied it in New York and paid a buck or two and got it in Hollywood. And the guy got it out there and he ran 20 copies and sent the thing off to all the big studios. And he got nervous when they started, they started wanting to buy it. So he called my agent and they had a big fight. And anyway, they said, okay, let's call a truce here. This could be something you know, big. And at the, at, the, at the last moment on that Sunday morning, Somebody said, um, perhaps we should call the author. And, uh, <laughs> and they did. And uh, so I, t- I, c- I called my agent. He said, yeah, we, we are, we're about to have the final round of bidding for uh, the firm, the film rights. I said, what about the book? We haven't sold the book rights. We've sold nothing. He said, I, he said, I can't talk to you right now. We're in a hurry. And uh, they're going to start bidding. And I need your authority to take the highest offer from uh, Paramount, uh, Universal Pictures, or Disney Touchstone for the film rights of the firm. And I said, well, okay, go, go do it. And I went back to church and told Renee, we were, you know, we were stunned, obviously. And we raced home after the longest sermon in the world. <laughs> It's one, one, one of the most bad services that just go on forever. Okay? You, got, you got special music. You got, uh, and they, oh, my, fa- my favorite, the baby dedication service. Everything. I want to sneak out the back door and go home. Uh, we suffered to it, got home, and the, the phone was literally ringing, and it was my agent. Uh, and he said, he said, we just sold the film rights to the firm, to Paramount Pictures. And I said, you got to be kidding yeah, that, 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 that's, that was the big phone call that changed it all because uh, suddenly, since we had a movie deal, uh, within two weeks, we had a book deal, another auction for the book. Then we had, uh, we, we kept all the foreign rights. Uh, that was the smartest thing I ever did. We kept all the foreign rights ourselves and we sold those off language by language and the book just kind of marched around the world. It was a phone call every other week, another deal. And, uh, at that point, I could walk out the law office and never look back. And that's that's what you did. <laughs> that happened. <laughs> well, John, uh, you and I are about the same age. You're a little uh, younger than I am, but you know, when when we went to law school, nobody, none of the law professors or classes were talking about leadership or the fact that uh, lawyers, because of our capacity to communicate and organize and argue and persuade and do all the things we do. Uh, obviously have a lot of potential to be leaders. The question is, are we becoming leaders? So this conference uh, is, has got a lot of law schools who are uh, either have implemented or are thinking about implementing leadership programs uh, into the law school curriculums. Um, what's your thought on, uh, you know, back in our day, if we had something like this, is this something that you think would have been helpful to you? Well, back in our day, it was unheard of. You know, we, it was not... It was not, uh, I never heard the word leadership used in law school. Not, not that it was a bad thing. Uh, but as it turned out, um, looking back to places I've lived, uh, the leaders were usually lawyers. 
especially in politics. Um, I mentioned the state house that I was in, but uh, I've lived in you know, three or four small towns in the last 40 years, and uh, the leaders were almost always the lawyers, the lawyers were involved. I think leadership training is a wonderful idea for a law school or every law school because it's a natural. Uh, lawyers get things done. Lawyers are, know how to organize, communicate. Uh, they have a real feel for the problems of a community because they see them firsthand through their clients. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I'm sure it would be great if every profession, every professional school emphasized leadership. Uh, but the lawyers are going to be the leaders. Uh, and, and I think it's a wonderful idea to teach it or to inspire kids or students to, uh, to be aware of it. Uh, but we're, we're always going to be the leaders, most lawyers. Well, you know, particularly you see a lot of lawyers who become heads of universities. You see lawyers who become commissioners of major sports leagues. Uh, just, just the tools uh, in the lawyer's toolkits seem to, uh, lead people in different areas of leadership. And certainly that's been true of, of uh, the different ways that you've found in your own unique way with gifts to become a leader. So let's uh, move to kind of the present and the future. Uh, your next legal thriller uh, is coming out next month on October the 13th, and it's titled A Time for Mercy. So would you give this audience a sneak preview of it? Uh, sure, I'd love to. It's a sequel to A Time to Kill. Uh, a Time to Kill was published in 89. I went 24 years before bringing back uh, Jake Brigantz and his cast of characters in the small town of Clanton, Mississippi. Uh, it's, a Time to Kill was very autobiographical. I, I've told you the story because when I wrote when I wrote that book, uh, I was living that life in that small town in Mississippi, and and I, and I knew the I knew the clients, the characters, the judges. I knew them all, and, and, and that's where I would prefer to do all my writing. So that's where I'm from. That's where I belong. Um, but for for a long time, I, I kept waiting for the next story. In 2013, I published a book called Sycamore Row, which is uh, Jake uh, and and back in Clanton uh, with a civil trial, not a criminal trial. And um, that book, uh, when it was published, it, it, did, uh, it did very well, uh, much higher than the other books. And we realized that uh, there, there are a lot of people who um, like Jake and they like the characters, they like A Time to Kill, and they like those stories. And so uh, after Sycamore Road, 2013, um, I began thinking of, you know, the next story. I can't, I can't. Uh, I can't write a book until I have the story. I mean, and, and sometimes the stories, I told you 20 years ago, I'd love to write a baseball novel. I'd written two football books. I love sports. Um, and I, I, I wanted to write a, a really good baseball novel. And, but I didn't have a story. I kept waiting and waiting and waiting for the story. And finally, I was inspired by uh, one of your heroes, Tony Conigliero uh, <laughs> of the Red Sox and the famous beanball and, and his, what happened to him after that. And, and so I, uh, that, that book became a Calico Joe, but it took me 25 years to, uh, or 20 years to, to get the story. And, and so with Jake and, and, and Clanton, uh, I, I can't just, you know, I'd love to do a, a big courtroom drama every other year with Jake. But in reality, in a small town in Mississippi, no, no lawyer is going to have that many big cases. So, so I, can't, I can't use him all the time. But a couple of years ago, um, 
inspired by a true story. And I'm, I'm almost always inspired by a true story. Um, uh, this, the idea came together and, uh, and I got really excited about it. And uh, so I started, started writing in January. I always started in January of this year and try to finish by July the 1st. And I was um, making a lot of progress. January, February, March are great times to write because there's not much going on but college basketball, uh, which we really enjoy, but uh, just a good time to write. And, and then COVID hit. And COVID, you know, kept me at home. It still got me at home. I couldn't uh, get out much. Still can't. And so the book got thicker and thicker and thicker. <laughs> I, think, I think it's the longest book I've written. I think it has more words than all the other books. Uh, but there's a, lot, there's a lot to the story. And uh, Jake is, Jake is uh, forced by his judge, Judge Noose from A Time to Kill, to take a very unpopular case of a 16-year-old, defense of a 16-year-old kid uh, charged with uh, the fatal uh, killing of a deputy sheriff. And it's a dead cop in a small town, and Jake wants no part of it. And nobody else does either. And the judge um, got him involved quickly just to make sure the kid's rights were protected because sentiment is really hot against the kid. And Jake had every intention of getting rid of the case. Uh, but, but the judge could not find uh, another lawyer uh, in the area to take the case. And, of course, you know up front that Jake's going to take the case and get stuck with it. And so once he once he embraces his client's defense, you know, it's no looking back. And in doing so, though, he realizes that the town has really turned against him, his hometown, because he's taken a very unpopular case, which happens. And so that's the that's a setup for a time to mercy. Time for mercy. Well, I can't imagine anybody hearing that description and not pre-ordering the book on Amazon today. And uh, I have had the privilege of reading an advanced copy, and I encourage everybody that despite its length, and it's not that long, but it, it's a fantastic uh, uh, novel. I know you'll enjoy it. Well, tell me, uh, you're being a bit modest here. You, you, you did not read the advanced reading copy. You read the uh, galleys. Before it went to, uh, and you and you proofread. I sent you the book, and I said proofread this, okay? And because I value your insight, and I value your your ability to uh, to uh, tell stories and 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 spot flaws, and you were very good as an editor. I didn't know you could be an editor, but you were very good. Well, uh, I'm going to turn it over to uh, either Stephen or Leah. We're about at the end of the hour. I don't know, Stephen, Leah, if you've got any questions or final uh, comments for John, but uh, John, as always, it's been a fun conversation, and I think our audience has learned about a lot of different ways that lawyers can lead, even when they're not practicing law, so uh, thanks for being a part of this uh, conference. My pleasure, I enjoyed it. Always good. John Grisham is not only America's greatest storyteller, he's also a leader in many important causes. Reform of our justice system, the Innocence Project, Legal Aid and Access to Justice, and No Kid Hungry. John's upcoming novel, A Time for Mercy, comes out on October 13, and it's a sequel to A Time to Kill. I've read an advanced copy, and it's absolutely terrific. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. 
This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford Bowen McKinley & Norton. Thanks for listening.